Blog Talk Radio. So you want your charity to succeed. It's no secret that combining online and offline techniques is the key to modern-day fundraising success, and practical advice is what you need. The Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart is the perfect place to learn from experts around the world who, along with our host, provide advice you can use. Ted Hart is without a doubt one of the foremost nonprofit thought leaders. Also a successful author, his books cover a broad range of topics from major gift fundraising to use of social media and how to succeed online. Ted lectures around the world, but now he's here for you. From the latest in charity news, technology, fundraising, and social networking, Ted and his guests help you maneuver through this economic downturn in the charitable sector to greater levels of efficiency and fundraising success. Remember, this is a live call-in show. Become part of the show by adding your voice. Call now at 347-324-3080. After the show, you can find all our podcasts at tedhart.com. Just click on radio links. Don't forget to dial 347-324-3080. Now, welcome the host of The Nonprofit Coach, Ted Hart. And this is Ted Hart, your host of The Nonprofit Coach radio show. Uh, This is December 11th, and I'm coming to you live from the national headquarters of the Charities Aid Foundation of America. We've got a big show for you uh, today. As the announcer just mentioned, this is a live call-in show, so please make sure that you prepare to call in and ask your big questions uh, for our uh, page two expert today, Clint O'Brien, who is coming to us from CARE2. Um, Also, uh, you can join us over in the chat room, and you can email me your questions at tedhart at tedhart.com. Dot com. As always here on The Nonprofit Coach, we start the show with page one news. You can follow along with the page one news links over at tedhart.com. Just click, click on radio links. Uh, first up here in the news today is big changes coming in the new year from Twitter. Uh, Twitter will be reducing some tweets to just 117 characters. So if you think 140 characters isn't enough to say what you want to say, get ready for 117. Starting in February, tweets that contain certain URLs will be reduced to 118 characters, 117 for HTTPS links. While that may not seem like a huge drop, the change represents a two-character drop per tweet uh, from what you're currently able to send as a hypertext link is involved. Uh, Announcing just Thursday um, of last week, the Twitter developer's blog, uh, the adjustment is due to some upcoming changes at Twitter's t.co link wrapper. The revision extends the maximum length of t.co wrapped links from 20 to 22 characters, and for non-HTTPS URLs, uh, from 21 to 23 characters uh, for those secure links. You can read all the details over in the radio links today at tedhart.com. Next up here on page uh, one news comes to us from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. A little bit of insight into donors and certain email addresses. This report 
uh, comes to us, as I said, from the Chronicle of Philanthropy. Donors who provide their work email addresses um, when they make an online gift tend to contribute more than those who use free email addresses, such as AOL, Gmail. Hotmail or Yahoo, according to a new report, they analyzed some 320,000 gifts from 165,000 donors. So a good size uh, report here. For most of 2012, people with work addresses contributed $165 average gift, while those who offered Gmail addresses only gave $143 per gift, according to GGIVE. Uh, or QGIVE, I'm sorry, uh, an online mobile fundraising platform used by small and medium small sized nonprofits. People with AOL addresses donated just $138 each time they gave a gift online, uh, with the cheapskates over on Yahoo only giving $120. For charity fundraisers, the findings suggest they can win uh, bigger gifts by aiming appeals at donors based on email addresses that they use from their businesses. Uh, so take a look at this, analyze your email list, and see if there may be reason to have a different sort of appeal for those that are clearly branded as business email addresses as opposed to AOL, Gmail, Hotmail, or Yahoo, who tend to give less. Next up here on uh, page one news, uh, this is um, our day for the CFRE Minute. And today, uh, Phil Schumacher is going to be filling in today. Uh, Phil Schumacher is the Vice Chair of the CFRE International Board. Ava Aldrich normally joins us for the CFRE Minute, but this is quite a thrill uh, for us to have an opportunity to chat with Phil Schumacher. Uh, Phil, welcome here to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show. Thank you, Ted. Nice to be with you. Yeah, great to have you here on the show. Each month we have the CFRE Minute where we give our uh, listeners an opportunity to have insight into what's happening at CFRE. So take it away. What's going on over at CFRE.org? Well, I think I have something that's special. We haven't announced this yet, so uh, you're the uh, inaugural announcement of this. Our board met the first weekend of December, actually the uh, 30th of November and the 1st and the 2nd of December. And one of the... Um, Items that we looked at, was we always look at our exam, of course, and the exam committee was making a recommendation. And one of the things that uh, the exam is heavy on is ethics, but as we realized, not all uh, individuals are part of organizations with ethical and professional standard statements. Uh, most of those that take the test are, but not everyone. So uh, the exam committee recommended and the board approved that we will use the International Statement of Ethical Principles in Fundraising, which was uh, first rolled out in December of 2006 and passed by uh, a body of about 17 different organizations as a underlying ethical statement uh, for the, the exam and for the uh, CFRE International. So we're very excited about that and just very briefly, what it really wraps itself around are five key words, uh, and, and, and they are actually universal principles. And those are honesty, respect, integrity, empathy, and transparency. And uh, the exam committee actually built four or five questions around the ethical statement, which will be, those questions will be now tested and eventually moved into um, the different versions of the exam. 
Well, that's terrific. Uh, thank you uh, for announcing that. Uh, we always appreciate it here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, when we're able to bring news and the International Statement of Ethical Principles in Fundraising, as you mentioned, uh, from 2006 is a statement that we um, endorse um, and urge that our listeners uh, follow here on the Nonprofit Coach. Um, and, and I think this is an incredible uh, endorsement from CFRE, another uh, very important feather in the cap for the ethical principles. And, and I agree with you. I think that uh, for those who uh, maybe come from different traditions or um, don't have access or have not been utilizing um, some of the other ethical principles that are out there, this uh, sort of creates a little bit more of a level playing field uh, for the questions on the exam that, that have to do with ethics. We certainly think so, Ted, and I, um, I'm, I'm excited about it and um, happy that we're able to share this type of information with you and your listeners. Well, that's great. Well, thank you, uh, Phil Schumacher, for joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach uh, with the CFRE Minute and today making news uh, here and announcing to our listeners uh, for the first time uh, the outcome of your board of directors in the endorsement of the International Statement of Ethical Principles in Fundraising and the Five Universal Principles, which now will be incorporated into your exam and, and uh, I think uh, provide a level playing field for those seeking to take the exam uh, to have a good shot at passing the exam when it comes to ethics. And I think, uh, Phil, from uh, years and years of talking to people about taking the exam, I think one of the scariest parts for a lot of people uh, is the ethical principles because, of course, we all hope to uh, think of ourselves as ethical fundraisers, but when it comes to an actual set of standards, what is the exam looking for? And this uh, gives everybody a common platform to look to. Exactly. Thank you, Ted. You bet. That's uh, Phil Schumacher, Vice Chair of the CFRE International Board, joining us here on the Nonprofit Coach. We're still here on page one and going back to uh, uh, page one news. I do want to draw your attention over in the radio links. You'll find the Social Media Report 2012 Facebook dominance in the U.S. continues. Um, interestingly, consumers spent 20% of their time on PC, while 30% of their time online by mobile. So uh, for all of our listeners today to uh, seriously be looking at where does a mobile fit within uh, your overall plans. In the United States, uh, Facebook remains the most visited social networking site on PCs, uh, conquering uh, 152 million visitors. Uh, mobile apps acquire 78 million, uh, and mobile web, about 74 million uh, visitors. Facebook proves to be multiple times the size of the largest social uh, sites across each platform, uh, and it is also it is the U.S. top brand, uh, as 17% spent time on aligned by PC uh, using Facebook. So read the entire report. This will bring you up to date in terms of uh, who is using what. However, uh, here on the Nonprofit Coach, we still stand by our uh, six pillars of success for nonprofit organizations online, which starts with a well-designed website, uh, includes having a robust GuideStar um, strategy. And when it comes to Facebook, we actually – uh, rank LinkedIn as uh, more important for the average nonprofit uh, seeking grant support and seeking to connect with corporate executives. Not to say that Facebook is not important. Facebook is in the top six pillars of success for nonprofit organizations. The question for your organization is where does it fit and what is the likely payoff uh, for your organization? 
Um, so uh, that uh, gives us the opportunity to wrap up today here on Page One News, which means uh, it is time to move over to our Page Two expert. Our Page Two expert today is uh, Clint O'Brien. He's Vice President of Nonprofit Services for Care2.org with more than 21 million members and 16 million unique monthly visitors. Care2 is the largest community of people taking action every day to support causes and make a better world. Founded in 1998 in California, Care2 is a certified B Corporation, uh, helping, uh, help, which helps leading nonprofits to recruit donors and win advocacy victories. The campaigns that Care2 conducts for its clients also reach tens of millions of additional people via partnerships with 200 media partners and blogs. Welcome back here to the nonprofit coach, Clint O'Brien. It's good to be back, Ted. Well, Clint, you always uh, um, uh, do a great job for us here on the show, and we appreciate you coming back. Today um, is uh, a show I'm particularly excited about uh, coming on the heels of the U.S. presidential elections, um, which were, by any uh, estimation, uh, pretty divisive in this uh, in this country. Um, last time that you were here on this show, uh, February 8th, 2011, uh, your show um, on that day about B Corporations is the sixth overall most popular podcast of the Nonprofit Coach of all time. So uh, congratulations. You always bring to us uh, very, very timely topics. And today we want to talk about values. Um, and how, how those relate to fundraising campaigns, but also the bigger issue of responsibilities that nonprofits have when people contribute and want to support them uh, for specific reasons, how are they meant to be stewards uh, of that work? So I'm going to let you kind of get started, tell us a little bit uh, about CARE2, but also lead us into why you think this is such an important topic for all of my listeners as they look to successful campaigns in 2013. Well, it's a pleasure. So um, I guess it starts with the fact that I've now been in the nonprofit sector for 16 years because before uh, coming to CARE2, I was at the Public Broadcasting Service, the nonprofit TV network. And um, and then since coming to CARE2, which is a for-profit, uh, but a for-profit that earns its living by serving nonprofits primarily, um, I've been, you know, uh, it's, it's something that I've thought a lot about, and I've seen lots of examples of organizations that approach the whole topic of core values really well, and then others that stumble uh, on, on those issues. And so I think that um, what your listeners, who undoubtedly include a lot of professional nonprofit fundraisers, find important is, you know, what are the principles that come out of these experiences, both the good and the bad, and the lessons that can be learned, you know, because uh, I think so much of what of what gives us, gives strength to any nonprofit organization is its brand and the the relationship that its brand has with supporters of that organization, uh, especially donors, but not only donors, you know, also with volunteers and other kinds of supporters who help the organization. And so there's this tremendous asset that builds up over time for an organization, and, and that includes for-profits, by the way, uh, but it's a tremendous asset in, in the form of the trust uh, and the willingness of, of, of constituents of an organization to support that cause and that particular organization. 
and it can be squandered. <laughs> and, um, you know, it's no secret that earlier this year, a lot of us were watching like a slow motion train wreck what was happening with, you know, one of the most respected nonprofits that uh, in the in the health space, and that's uh, Susan G. Komen, Race for the Cure. Yeah, break, break that down and just remind uh, my listeners uh, what happened there. That that seemed that seemed to be someone's personal views breaching into um, a very unwelcome space for a very respected brand. Well, exactly, and it was um, it was really surprising to so many people that the that the organization decided to venture into what what turned out to be very risky, very controversial territory and it really raised questions for a lot of the supporters of that organization about the social values, the core values of that organization. Um so, you know, most people are familiar this was back at the beginning of this year, Susan G. Komen, which is uh, an organization that was is clearly the number one best known uh organization of its kind, you know, fighting cancer uh, particularly breast cancer, um, you know, tremendous image. They um, made a decision uh, based on the urgings of somebody pretty senior in their hierarchy who was politically active and, and conservative that they should stop providing grants to the Planned Parenthood um, uh, Federation. And, you know, that that turned out to be um, – really risky because Planned Parenthood has an image of its own uh, and is very highly regarded by a lot of people, including a lot of people who support Susan G. Komen. And, you know, part of the irony for many people is that Planned Parenthood is one of the organizations that provides breast cancer testing uh, all around the country and especially to um, higher-risk individuals, people, you know, low-income low areas, etc. And that's why it, it had always seemed appropriate to a lot of people that Susan G. Komen would provide some of its funding in the form of grants to Planned Parenthood. So the decision to stop providing those grants um, provoked a, a tremendous backlash. And uh, So what, what, is, what is the measure here? I'm thinking for my, my listeners here today. Of course, you come into your role, whatever that role might be, maybe your executive director, CEO, uh, maybe your director of development, and you're, you're still an individual, and who you are and what you believe has a, a lot to, to do with the success that you've had in your career and the success that you're likely to have in your career. But, but what do you do with your personal views, and what sort of measure would you give my listeners today that they don't make um, ill-conceived uh, uh, approaches like that? Because this, this was a very clearly a personal view that was out of sync with long-held standards that donors counted on in their support for organization? Well, I think it starts with informing yourself of what are the views held by your supporters and that you are echoing back to them in your mission statement and in your communications with them. And, you know, you it might not be obvious. You might start out with one set of assumptions that turns out not to be true, which is why you know, surveying your membership is an easy way to inform yourself of what their social values are. And then you, you, you have to stay faithful to those social values. And, and this is uh, pretty universal. I think it extends, you know, it transcends the nonprofit sector uh, to, into the for-profit sector as well. When you stand for something, it's important to keep standing for, for that same thing and not to seem to do a 180 um, that, that will feel like a betrayal. To your supporters, um, well, talk to me about that about that that betrayal because there there are a number of examples. I know that we'll be talking about those 
uh, today, Susan Komen, of course, being uh, the, the, the most immediate, um, very um, a public case uh, where a single person seemed to even be out of sync with her own boards of directors. Um, so where does that person's personal views, uh, what should she be doing in terms of the leadership that she brings? Um, or if, if, you, if you feel that you're out of sync with longstanding views of that sort, do you have an obligation to either put them on the shelf or leave? You know, I, I, I think the answer is um, is neither. I, th- I think actually it's really important for people to internally be a dissident if they disagree with the values being espoused by their organization, um, and, and internally, again, privately, to make their reasons known for why they disagree. And um, I'll give you an example that's pretty close to home. Uh, there's a member of my team at CARE2 who um, – really didn't feel that we should be working with one particular client and made a case for that. And, you know, regardless of what the decision was, in the end, I mean, it happens to be that I uh, I ended up agreeing with that person and it led to you know, significant consequence in, in, in our client acceptance policy for that particular client. But but almost the outcome is, is less important to me than the process, which is to say we shouldn't check our values at the door when we go to work for an employer, whether that's a for-profit or non-profit. But once you've made your case internally and privately, um, you know you kind of have to live with the results, and, and you might fail. You might not persuade the leadership to change course. So is that part of the answer? Is is part of what you're suggesting that um, every one of my listeners, every nonprofit organization, should have a clearly defined internal process through which they vet and discuss um, things that may be controversial or may be uh, a substantive change, and that. Um, either through decisions of the leadership or through some sort of democratic process, um, everybody will be on board to whatever the, the, the decision is as opposed to um, a whole staff of individuals um, taking different stance. Well, exactly. I mean, a- any marketing or branding expert will talk about the importance of consistency across marketing channels and consistency of messaging. And, and so the organization needs to have you know one messaging uh, or set of messages that it adheres to and that it's consistent about, which is why you can't have you know lots of internal people uh, spouting lots of different viewpoints that that are inconsistent with each other. But I guess my point is to to make a plea for uh, for people internally to feel free to speak their minds, you know, in the right circumstances, and make that case. But you know, once once decisions are made, people do need to fall into line, or as you you know, alluded to earlier, if they're really dissatisfied and they feel that the organization just isn't the right one for them, then then they do have a duty to leave. But I, I don't think it's smart for organizations to sort of muzzle dissent by having a litmus test coming in and saying, you know, only people who adhere to all of this, you know, 100% are eligible for employment with us. I think an organization actually deprives themselves of, of valuable information if they take that attitude. So, you know, external discipline in the messaging, but internal dissent encouraged. You know, well, and that's and that's how organizations, I suppose, um, have an opportunity to grow and change over time. Because there's there's lots of organizations that may change their stance over time, but they need to do that in such a way that they're being informed of their donors and they're bringing their donors along. Because any any change of that sort is likely to have some people leave the fold. Exactly. I mean, I think if you look at the Boy Scouts, for example, uh, today, 
which is you know fantastic organization doing great things, and yet um, you know they've come under a lot of fire for their policy of of not tolerating homosexual scoutmasters, and you know that's a very proper debate. And and, and, and and atheists as well. They're 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 anti-atheists as well. Yeah. So I mean, the, there's a, a a cognitive dissonance when a substantial part of your supporters disagree with with a policy that they care about deeply. And and so an organization has to navigate that, and I, I, I I'm sure that it's a difficult subject internally uh, for the Boy Scouts right now, and, and I don't even think it's over yet. I think they're still kind of debating that. But um, you know, I mean, those those are the kinds of challenges that are among the very hardest, I think, for any organization, for profit or nonprofit, to cope with. Uh, almost almost as difficult as economic crises, you know. Right. Right. So share with us other examples that, uh, that you think um, bring into uh, focus the kinds of challenges that all of my listeners, uh, regardless of the type of organization that you are, um, while it might not be as stark or as nationally public as what uh, Susan G. Komen uh, went through, and, and ultimately I believe, uh, correct me if I'm wrong, Clint, but ultimately they did reverse that policy and went back to their original stance. Is that right? They did. They, they um, you know, ultimately made that decision to reverse course. But by then, you know, from a PR consultant's point of view, they, the damage was done. You know, they'd, they'd already, you know, sowed tremendous doubt uh, among a lot of their supporters about where their heart lay. lay. Um, and I think that that's, it may take a long time for them to kind of recover uh, from that incident. And, and I think it's totally possible, and hopefully it will be possible for them to recover, but it, it just may take a while. Building trust uh, is something that typically takes a long time, and yet it's, it's amazing how you can lose it pretty quickly if, if you make poor choices. Um, well, and, and, that, and, and isn't, that, uh, isn't that part of uh, the, uh, uh, the topic that we're talking about today is this matter of trust um, and how people are drawn to you for specific reasons because they care very deeply uh, about whatever it is that you've put out there. Um, and don't don't you have an obligation to stay true to that? Uh, you know, it's you you have an obligation on multiple levels, right? There's sort of the ethics or morals of it, but there's also kind of the the business case for consistency. Um, you know, once you've made a choice as to the kind of supporters that you're going to represent and, and service, you know, you you kind of you're kind of bought in. You have to um, you have to agree with supporting those people, or or they'll let you know it. And particularly in the age of social media. There are many ways for them to express their um, their displeasure towards you, and and it could be you know can be tremendously injurious to your image, and and conversely, it can be a tremendous boon to you know anyone who's seen as a rival in your space. And uh, so the the obvious case in the in the case of Komen is Planned Parenthood, which raised you know record sums of money during that whole um, affair earlier this year because there was tremendous outpouring of sympathy. For Planned Parenthood, I remember even Mayor Bloomberg did a matching campaign, uh, something like a quarter million dollars for Planned Parenthood as a way of very publicly expressing his support for Planned Parenthood, which was seen as kind of being discriminated against and victimized by the situation. Well, and, and, and in fact, uh, Komen may have permanently lost some donors uh, who may have been contributing to both, but then just decided uh, because of their own values that uh, they wanted to give to, uh, in this instance, Planned Parenthood, uh, because they were being consistent and Komen was not. Exactly, exactly. Um, I often look at, at it from, from this perspective, Clint, that you know, donors 
choose to affiliate themselves with charities because they care very deeply about whatever the topic may be, and it may be that you're a university or a hospital or, or Susan Komen or Planned Parenthood or the Boy Scouts or whatever the group may be, people care about what it is that you stand for and the things that you say that you're going to do. And they don't spend all day thinking about that charity. They don't want to have to worry about how the decisions of that charity are going to be reflected on them. Uh, because, of course, oftentimes people's names are you know, printed in donor lists and, and, and in other ways uh, affiliated with the charity. So doesn't that also drive home this issue of uh, a really true public trust? It, it totally does drive home that issue. And I think that, um, you know, especially in this day and age when people have easy ways to show their support for nonprofits, uh, such as by putting their logo on their Facebook page or, you know, wearing their T-shirt or whatever, it kind of ups the ante emotionally, and it, it means that, uh, you know, people will feel twice as betrayed if they've made it this part of their personal brand, and then it, it sort of betrays their value system. And and, it, and, and as we saw, and I, I do want to move on, uh, we can come back to Susan Komen, but it, it is so recent that I think that a lot of my uh, listeners today probably, you know, can uh, uh, relate to that. Um, in, in that specific case, there were a lot of uh, blog posts that were uh, being presented stating how people were removing photos and removing logos and removing their own personal affiliation with an organization that they no longer felt represented their values. Right. And I, I have a lot of sympathy for organizations that find themselves in these situations as they're pursuing fundraising, you know, because that's kind of the lifeblood of any nonprofit organization. They have to keep the lights on if they're to advance the cause. But what was so striking about the Komen controversy was that it seemed to be driven by ideology, you know, where somebody's uh, conservative agenda, uh, which, which, to be fair, included, you know, something that people feel very strongly about, which is uh, the whole abortion abortion issue. But it was an ideological agenda, not an economic agenda, that drove them to make that decision. But I think the much more common example is economics, you know, where uh, nonprofits uh, are trying to legitimately raise revenue to support their cause, and it brings them into, you know, uh, what some would call risky uh, situations where, where uh, it leads to these whole challenges associated with their core values. Exactly. So get, move on to uh, give, it, give us another example um, that, that helps us uh, weigh in on, on this issue of conflicting values that become a, a, a matter of public trust. Well, so one mild one that I'm very familiar with uh, from my time at PBS is, uh, you know, the whole concept of should nonprofits accept advertising. And uh, it was something that in my day at, P at PBS we really agonized over and Lots of our member stations, uh, whom PBS has to be very responsive to, were, were dead set against the idea of PBS accepting advertising on our website. Um, you know, never mind that we already had sponsorship messages on air. We didn't have uh, we didn't have true advertising on our website, and and in fact, uh, on television, PBS is very regulated by the FCC. So there are very strict limits on the kind of advertising that are acceptable. It has to be very short. It can't do comparisons to products. Um, that wasn't supposed. To, they weren't supposed to use mascots for many years. There's all these, you know, somewhat arcane restrictions, but there weren't those kinds of rules on the web. And I was working at the time with PBS Interactive, uh, what we then called PBS Online. So it's PBS.org, PBSKids.org, and you know, we were hungry for new income to support our activities, and we wanted to try advertising. We really agonized over whether to do it, 
in part because part of, of PBS's image is as the non-commercial alternative on your TV dial um, to all those other stations that are nonstop advertising. And so, um, you know, in the end, we decided we should move ahead and try to earn advertising revenue and offer ads on the Internet. Um, but like I said, it was a big controversy. And then even after we did it, we had to set really strict guidelines uh, for the kinds of ads that were allowed on the site. And, you know, we, we had to do backflips, basically, to pre-approve ads that were coming in through uh, an online ad network. Every morning, um, there was a member of my team who had to personally look through you know, spending about half an hour looking through the ads that the ad agency was proposing to allow to appear on our site, and she had to affirmatively approve each one, which was incredibly manual intensive. But you know, those are the kinds of things you do when you have an image that's at risk from the activity. And by the way, there's a more mundane issue too, which is um, the IRS uh, has something called UBIT, U-B-I-T, Unrelated Business Income Tax. So any revenue you generate from something that isn't directly tied to your mission um, is taxable. And, um, and so we had to consider uh, paying income tax on the revenue generated by uh, the advertising activity. And what, what was the outcome from the average uh, donor? Did, you, did PBS at that time, when, when I guess it was most controversial, did you lose donors? Did you lose funders? Um, I mean, if that change was made, that, that seems like a very similar sort of um, wrenching change that, that some people may not have been supportive of. Well, certainly there were some complaints. Um, there almost always are, no matter what change you're making. Um, and, and, and definitely some of our local stations disapproved of the activity, including some general managers of local PBS stations. Um, but we moved ahead, and in general, you know, the sky did not fall. And uh, and PBS did not abandon its non-commercial mission. I mean, now as a parent, I, I'm, I'm still amazed at how nice it is uh, to tune in PBS children's programming and have the commercials not come during the program, but they're saved for the very end. And then they're really soft, mild commercials. They're, they're sponsorship messages, and they're short, and they don't hit you over the head. And So um, it's still kind of a, an oasis for me on the TV dial. So, no, I, I feel as if that was the right decision. But, you know, it, it did – it did uh, call into question uh, our relationship with our viewers, and it did displease some of them, and we probably did lose a few donations, probably just not, not a ton. So how, how does an organization maneuver through those waters? Because going back to Susan Komen and relating those two, you know, what if the correct movement was to deny that funding and they had to weather that, and ultimately um, it, Susan Komen were looking back on the fact that uh, – um, people were more supportive of that, just as with PBS, they weathered that. They they made the decision, and you're saying that was the right decision, controversial at the time. So how do you maneuver through that, and how, how do, do my listeners today know that if they're facing something like that, um, how do you go about that? Is it a matter of transparency of dialogue? Is that the measure? I think that's a big part of it. Um, Certainly, you know, in our CEO's blog with Care2 members, he's always engaging with them on the kind of ethical issues that we're facing. Uh, you know, for example, he, re he did a blog post a couple of years ago about why we had turned away uh, an ad campaign from a company that he was nicknaming Monstero, you know, saying, I won't tell you who it is, but it, it sounds a bit like Monstero. <laughs> and so it's obvious to everyone who we were talking about, but... Um, but he was saying, you know, how it feels as a business like an unnatural act to turn away money, and yet sometimes it's exactly what you have to do. Uh, at PBS, you know, we had to take a measured approach when we introduced advertising. For example, 
We introduced it on PBS.org, but we didn't introduce any advertising on PBSKids.org because we felt like that needed to be a safe sandbox, a non-commercial safe space for kids. Um, so you have to be willing to you know, leave some money on the table, to use the cliché, because if you don't, there's the risk that, you, that someone may take the whole table away from you. you know? uh, so you have to live within the limits that, that your mission may set for you. Um, and so, so what kind of, you had mentioned earlier, um, you know, some sort of group think or some sort of process through which you advocate internally for that kind of change um, before you go public. So how do these activities become public and sort of engage a broader audience without necessarily bringing down the whole house of cards? Well, it's a good question. I, I think many of these debates uh, shouldn't become public, that they're properly um, made you know, behind closed doors within the organization uh, because, frankly, no matter how well-meaning your campaign might be, it can be uh, perceived differently by different people, and you might have some folks who are more, ten- more prone to be critics who interpret things very uncharitably. Um, I was tempted to sympathize, for example, with, again, Susan G. Komen when they did a, a widely criticized um, cause marketing campaign a few years ago uh some of some of your listeners may recall the famous uh pink buckets uh campaign the cause marketing campaign they did with Kentucky fried chicken yeah and, and you posted this for my listeners to know over in the radio link today uh, i know that there is a sort of a bit of a tongue in cheek uh review of that done by Stephen Colbert and we did post that uh, that link over in the radio link just so that people can uh can look about uh, look at that and 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 he actually in that clip uh, brings together, um, you know, sort of an interesting array of of corporate sponsorships around diseases. None of which, and the way that he presents it, uh, none of them make any sense at all. <laughs> well, it's it's debatable, but he he certainly is a master satirist, and uh, uh, he he pointed out one advocacy group had criticized Susan G. Komen for that campaign because. You know, it, it's not the healthiest of food, Kentucky Fried Chicken, and uh, and they said it's hypocrisy for an anti-cancer organization to, you know, be endorsing unhealthy food. And and I think his response was, it's not hypocrisy, it's hippo crispy, and he takes a big bite of chicken. Right, exactly. Yeah, it's very um, cute. And listeners should uh, should go over to the radio links uh, for today's show and at least get a chance to uh, uh, grab a little bit of humor from uh, Stephen Colbert. But, I, I mean, I, I totally sympathize with the fundraisers at nonprofits who are doing this. In fact, actually, one of my favorite conferences that I go to every year is the Cause Marketing Forum in Chicago. I think this year it's in May. I've gone for the last seven years, and I go because it's very inspirational to see successful cause marketing where for-profits and nonprofits come together. Uh, they team up. And um, and it it provides a win-win, you know, to use the cliche, because it's really good for the nonprofit typically, and it's also good for the for-profit. And I don't see anything inherently wrong with that. Um, I tend to believe that companies are uh, potentially a part of the solution to a lot of causes and problems, and and should not be assumed to be the problem themselves. So I I, I think when somebody makes a misstep like that pink buckets campaign. Um, I'd like to, to not judge them too harshly. I mean, I think I think the critics were right. It was an ill-conceived campaign. Um, but on the other hand, it's I, I don't have a problem with um, with corporate team-ups. I, well, it depends. I mean, some organizations um, have just sworn off to corporate team-ups 
completely. So like the Nature Conservancy, which I respect a lot, um, engages in corporate team-ups all the time, but Environmental Defense Fund, another great environmental group, has a rule where they won't team up with corporations at all. And in cases like Consumers Union, a longtime client of ours, I can totally understand why they've sworn off doing any sort of partnership um, because if you think about their whole mission to provide transparent, unbiased, objective advice about products and to lobby on behalf of consumer safety and health, you know, they, they just can't afford to be viewed as tainted even in the slightest by an association with a for-profit company. So although I think it's, you know, sometimes understandable, in general I think it's a totally acceptable activity. It just has to be managed on a case-by-case basis, and it gets messy sometimes, and sometimes you make a mistake. And if you do make a mistake, I think you have to own up to that mistake in a somewhat public way as, as a way of encouraging your supporters not to lose faith in you. I mean, no, you're not perfect, but you also are trying to be transparent and accountable to them. Right. We're going to take just a real quick uh, station break here, and when we come back, I wanted to ask Clint O'Brien uh, to talk to us a little bit about the Nature Conservancy and some of the approaches that they take and the relevance Uh, to our topic uh, today, and we'll be right back after the break. Just a program uh, note uh, that next week is the final show here on the Nonprofit Coach for 2012. This is our big holiday show, and each year, Kay Sprinkle Grace is our guest, helping you with uh, the strategy that you will need for 2013 uh, for success. And she has done that for the last couple of years and always delightful on the holiday show. We then go into our holiday hiatus, and the holiday hiatus will take us through until the show returns to its regular schedule uh, starting on February 12th. So note that on your uh, calendars that uh, the time uh, from next week on through uh, December, or February 12th is a great time to catch up with over 100 podcasts that are available here from the Nonprofit Coach at tedhart.com. And so we're going to head uh, back over to Clint O'Brien, our page two expert here on the Nonprofit Coach. Remember, our podcasts and archives are always available 24 hours a day at tedhart.com. Click on radio links. If you're listening live today, the phone lines are open. Call in and ask a question by dialing 347-324-3080. Now, back to the Nonprofit Coach with Ted Hart. And we're back here live uh, with uh, Clint O'Brien, who is the Vice President of Nonprofit Services for CARE2. Uh, Clint, uh, before the uh, the break, I asked if you might weigh in on uh, some of the decisions and policies of the Nature Conservancy and how that relates to our discussion today. Well, sure. So um, the Nature Conservancy sees its role in the spectrum of environmental groups as being to conserve land. I mean, you probably remember the uh, the great TV advertising with Paul Newman and other people you know, talking about their mission. Um, and, and the particular approach that they use includes uh, allying themselves with corporations that are willing to donate land as a way of conserving it. I mean, that's kind of their main approach. And so, uh, you know, it's important to them and the role they've chosen for themselves in this, in this you know, sort of ecosystem of nonprofits conserving nature to not demonize companies, but rather to work with them uh, for, the, for the benefit of, of protecting land. 
Now, occasionally, they've made choices that have probably um, caused them to wonder whether those were good choices. I mean, most recently, they had allied themselves pretty closely with uh, BP, and, and after the oil spill in the Gulf, you know, BP was not on everybody's list of favorite companies. Um, and, and also, I think uh, they've taken some criticism. I remember an expose in the Washington Post some years ago about how a lot of the companies donating land to TNC would maintain the rights to drill for, uh, for natural resources under the land you know, from adjacent property, uh, kind of on a diagonal. And um, so stuff like that, you know, it's fair to debate <laughs> whether um, all those policies are the best. But, you know, they're not holding themselves out as perfect, and they're, and they're not adopting for themselves – you know, the kind of um, very self-righteous uh, position of, of other nonprofits on the opposite extreme who do tend to demonize companies. Uh, I'm talking about the environmental vector, the environmental vertical, I guess, of nonprofits. And, and you know, what I always tell my kids is it, it takes all kinds to make a movement. So, you know, if you want to have, you know, if you're going to abolish slavery, there are, are moderates and there are extremists. And so John Brown was an extremist, but he helped you know, at least in the perception, uh, show that other abolitionists were less extreme, and so you could work with them. And I feel the same way about, you know, like Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. You know, Malcolm X was widely viewed as an extremist, but by comparison, Martin Luther King looked like the moderate that uh, Congress and the president could deal with to achieve civil rights reform. So, you know, I, I actually don't sit in judgment on, on, on nonprofits that choose to ally themselves with companies as a way of effecting change. And that goes double for Care2, my company, because we are trying to prove that a company can be a do-gooder company and that can, can make a profit while still doing good in the world. Um, and that's actually, the concept behind yeah. the B Corporation to begin with, right? Exactly. Yeah, that's what we talked about the last time I was on your show at some length, that uh, there's this whole movement of companies trying to prove this, that it's not, um, in, it's not impossible to combine you know, a social mission with profit but you know it's not it's also sometimes messy and i think that we we have to admit that um we do make mistakes sometimes and we do have to correct those mistakes uh and and it, it's not a, an exact science you know uh, we're we're sort of determined to care too for example in our acceptance policy um especially for for clients our nonprofit clients um and our for-profit clients but less so for advertising which is more arm's length but for for uh for lead generation, which is our core business serving nonprofits, it's incredibly important to us to evaluate each uh, customer or client on a case-by-case basis because we can't. there's just no other way to do it. The nature of our service is a de facto endorsement of that organization, uh, extending the trust that Care2 members have for Care2, hopefully, if we're successful, extending that trust to our nonprofit client by urging our members to voluntarily sign up for those clients' email lists uh, and maybe make donations to them. So to us, that's much more than advertising, and we don't have a choice. We have to have standards in how we're going to accept clients. But, you know, we're the first to admit that it's not an exact science and does get messy sometimes. Exactly. Um, and, and there's some controversy brewing over at change.org. Um, how does that relate to our topic today? You know, I'm not going to wade into that. <laughs> okay. Um, they uh like us they're a for profit that serves nonprofits. Uh but their policies I can't speak for. I can only speak for ours. But I will say that um you know, it, it kinda goes back to what I was just saying that it's really important for us to have this case by case approach, messy though it may be, because we really can't take on clients, paying clients, 
who are doing recruitment through our service without making this endorsement. And so it's important that we're only endorsing those organizations that we can feel good about endorsing, and just as importantly, that our millions of Care2 members can can feel good about supporting. Um, and so that's the choice that we've made. But, um, yeah, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to decline to talk about that particular one. Okay. Um, well, I'll talk a little bit about it um, uh, in that uh, this is a, uh, an organization that has uh, presented itself and, and uh, to, to a certain extent has endeared itself with uh, more of a progressive following uh, and has grown tremendously over time. Um, and and it, for some people, uh, and I invite my, uh, my listeners to look into this for, just from their own perspective, uh, for some people um, that is a, a sacred trust. Uh, in that people who have, have decided to affiliate themselves with that organization um, specifically was not doing that based on falling in love with a particular platform or a set of technology, but that they felt that they were um, aligning themselves with millions of other like-minded people, um, and as the name suggests, they were able to affect change uh, based on, on those topics, and, and as I understand it, uh, there is a consideration of uh, changing that um, to no longer represent the people who have been on their platform uh, from the pro uh, progressive wing of uh, the political spectrum, but to now treat it more as a commodity and to open that up to anyone uh, who might use it. And I think that for some people, um, that feels like betrayal. Uh, and for other people, um, they, they uh, are concerned about it, it actually being used not to just straight up support conservative um, causes of one sort or another, um, but uh, more nefarious use uh, to actually try to undermine um, what they might consider to be their opposition uh, by muddying the waters on a platform that's been very successful. Um, so I'll just, I'll just put that out there because it is important to our topic today uh, that we explore all different avenues, and I think it comes back to, again, this public trust that we've been talking about, that, that when you present yourself in a certain way and when you are successful, because people are drawn to you for um, the particular success that, that you have had, um, it is important that you then realize that uh, you are representing people on, uh, on a level more than just they contribute to a charity or they contribute to a cause or, in this case, they use a particular uh, type of technology. Um, so I think across the spectrum, whether it's, it's Komen or the Boy Scouts or, or TNC or PBS or, or change.org or any of the other topics, it, it's, it's not an issue of whether or not you support progressive causes or conservative causes. Um, that's actually beside the point. Um, it's more an issue of knowing those who you are uh, running an organization or party to um, support that, um, that are there for a very specific reason. And, and I, I, I bring, bring this back, Clint, to, to sort of a, um, uh, a non-technology uh, a question that has been around for a very, very long time. Uh, and this comes down to the use of direct mail lists. Who actually owns your donors? Do you own your donors? Can you uh, essentially use that list in any way that you choose because they are a commodity that belongs to you? Or I think as most people who are in the nonprofit sector uh, feel that those names are only there because of the public trust that has been built, uh, that those names are not owned by the charity, but in fact the donors maintain their own identity um, and that they will affiliate as they choose. And that that trust, that, that basic balance, um, is one that, uh, that must be honored. 
Yeah, well, absolutely. And, you know, I think it's it's no wonder that um, a lot of people, uh, when they're targeted by a direct mailing and they never consented to be targeted, you know, might might be turned off by that. And it's it's not against the law or anything, but it's it's the equivalent of spam in your physical mailbox. Uh, and, and nobody likes spam in our electronic mailbox. But precisely, I mean, I think that um, – you know, it's it's one of the reasons why I think a lot of uh, fundraisers are struggling right now with doing direct mail acquisition. You know, it's declining numbers of people being acquired that way. But no, I mean the ethical stuff is um, it's it's just so messy, isn't it? <laughs> well, and 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 bring this full circle to this issue of um, ethics and values. Um, is this a, an ethical uh, imperative? You know, I think so, and I think the stakes are raised for nonprofits that engage in advocacy, right, because um, typically for advocacy there is a, a collective uh, movement to try to change the behavior of a company or a government or, you know, to get a law enacted or to block a law or something, and you're asking people to weigh in, and, you know, you're having to show a common bond with them, some unity. Um, there are, you know, plenty of folks who, like, you know, PBS, I keep bringing them up, but PBS and NPR and Smithsonian or even, um, you know, St. Jude Children's Research Hospital, a, a client of ours, that shy away from advocacy activities for various reasons. And so they have to use other non-advocacy techniques for getting people's attention and, and acquiring donors. But then there are plenty of other groups, um, you know, a few that come to mind are like Defenders of Wildlife or HRC or Greenpeace or Amnesty International, and, and those are advocacy-based organizations, like Children's Defense Fund. So they're skillfully using advocacy campaigns partly as a donor acquisition campaign, and I think that's totally appropriate and, and actually really smart for all kinds of reasons, but it raises the stakes, doesn't it, that uh, you have to keep faith with your supporters who you're urging to take some collective advocacy action uh, together with you on, and um, and so, you know, you have essentially a social contract with those people that cannot be violated or betrayed. And, um, well, and I, I think you're right. I, I think I think that's the essence of, of the message for today uh, is that you need to understand your supporters at a level that you can honor uh, that sacred trust. Right. Yeah, I, mean, I think it is pretty sacred and particularly for fundraisers to, to remember because um, I think when people donate their money, that's often an indication of that they care on a very deep level. And not always. <laughs> Some people, it's kind of a, a cop-out, easier to write a check than to get more involved. But for most people, most of us um, who don't have tons of money in the bank, to, to actually write a check and donate is a big deal for us, and we don't do it yeah, casually. And I think most people, at least on some level, you know, it, it is a big decision for someone to yeah. make uh, a gift, no matter what the size might be, uh, because the, the the value exchange there is that they could use that money for something else. Exactly, exactly. Yeah, so, but I, I, I want to stress that I have tremendous sympathy for for fundraisers who have to grapple with these questions, and I, I'm one of those people who believes I'd rather be damned for doing than damned for not doing. So while it's imperfect, I think it's important that – uh, for, for the appropriate organizations, that they look at all these tools, whether it's advocacy or cause marketing with for-profit partners or advertising. I mean, to me, none of these are inherently wrong. Um, it, it just has to be done carefully and with a sense of, of values. Uh, and, hopefully and, and, and is, is the message for today, 
Um, and again, I'm keeping track of the, the, the clock here. We only have a few moments left here on the show. Um, is, is the message for today to be transparent in those discussions, that, that you represent a community and not your own uh, personal views? I think that's right. And, and I, I know in a very kind of concrete, mundane way, uh, a lot of organizations struggle with, you know, charity navigator ratings and th- that, that level of scrutiny, more than transparency, it's scrutiny into, you know, the percentage of the donated dollar that goes back into the cause, for example. And, and organizations that get it wrong, I think, can, can suffer pretty badly. I know maybe some of your listeners are aware that Anderson Cooper on CNN has done a whole expose on various charities that seem to be paying too much of the donated dollars out to their, um, their for-profit fundraising vendor companies. Um, and so it, was, you know, it can get you into real trouble as, on the one hand. But you know, on the other hand, I feel like, like the charity navigator ratings uh, are often over-exaggerated, and, and you know, any charity can maintain a high charity navigator rating by being content to stay small, but then that's going to limit how much good they can do in the world for their cause. So I, I, you know, people shouldn't look at that myopically. But as a data point that our supporters look at and hold us accountable to, you've know, you got to take it very seriously. And it, it, it all works into this general social contract that I'm talking about, that you, you have a de facto contract with all of your supporters, not just the donors, and you've, you've got to stay consistent and live within that contract um, and not break that contract or you know, bad things will happen. <laughs> yeah, and, and 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 I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Of course, coming off from this uh, presidential campaign, uh, uh, pretty divided country, and lots of issues that get caught in the center of that. And unfortunately, for a lot of nonprofits, uh, they they can unwittingly become uh, pawns uh, to various uh, progressive or conservative uh, viewpoints when they're just trying to to uh, to do good work. So. Uh, Clint O'Brien, uh, again, Vice President of Nonprofit Services for CARE2, uh, coming to us today as our Page 2 expert on an extremely important topic and I think uh, very timely to be talking about values during the holiday season um, and certainly to be talking about transparency and how all this works into your successful campaigns uh, for 2013. Um, Clint, make sure that my listeners know how they can reach you. Sure. Well, I would encourage your listeners to check out uh, our blog for nonprofit professionals. It's called Frog Loop, frogloop.com. But they can always find me through um, the Care2 uh, partnership page at the bottom of Care2's homepage, care2.com. There's a thing that says partnerships. You can email me that way. Or or just uh, contact me in Washington, D.C. I'm based in our Washington, D.C. office, which is uh, 202-785-7308. Terrific, and we did provide a link to uh, Frog Loop today uh, in the radio links, so anyone who is over at tedhart.com, click on radio links, uh, will be able to find uh, Clint there. Clint, a very thought-provoking uh, show uh, as we did last time you were here. No doubt this will be a very highly rated uh, show <laughs> because I think that this is a, a touch point that every nonprofit organization has to deal with the complexities of these issues, and of course, we wish everyone great success um, with their donors and with their communities um, and making sure that um, I think, uh, Clint, uh, you and I both feel that you should remain true uh, and you should uh, honor that sacred trust that uh, your nonprofit organization has with its community. Thanks very much, Ted. It's always a pleasure. You bet. And that is the Nonprofit Coach. We'll be back next week 
with Kay Sprinkle Grace on Tuesday at 12 noon Eastern. That will be our final show for this 2012 season, uh, coming back to you in 2013 after our winter hiatus. Everyone, have a wonderful uh, week. We'll be back with you next Tuesday. You've been listening to the Nonprofit Coach Radio Show with Ted Hart. Tell all your friends to check out our production schedule and download our iPod and iPad-friendly podcast at tedhart.com. Thanks for listening to The Nonprofit Coach.